Learning to farm on Mars and looking for life in the saltiest of waters. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan, Senior Communications Advisor at the Planetary Society. It's great to be back at the Plan Red microphone while Sarah is on vacation. She'll be back next week with more of this human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Planetary Society has just announced the two projects that have been awarded our latest STEP grants. That's science and technology enabled by the public. The Society's chief scientist, Bruce Betts, will provide a brief overview of the program in moments. It all begins with selected headlines from the Downlake, our free weekly newsletter. The May 26th edition is topped by a stunning image of what may be sand dunes on Pluto. That's if you can call tiny particles of frozen methane sand. Check out the close-up captured by New Horizons when it whizzed by in 2015. Move over, SpaceX. NASA has picked the team led by Blue Origin as the second provider of a lander that will put humans back on the moon. The Blue Moon lander is expected to be part of the Artemis V mission. We link to the NASA release and a very cool artist concept at planetary.org slash downlink. Hey, Bruce. We got you up front here to talk a little bit more about the STEP grants. And as I've told everybody, we're going to be meeting the two principal investigators in moments. But uh, since you run this program, I thought you might want to remind us a little bit of, you know, why this is so important to us and why we're so glad that it's been successful. I'm so impressed by these two projects. Yeah, and I'm very happy with it. And it is a relatively new program. We just ran, uh, this is now just the second round of STEP grant winners. And basically, we created the STEP grant program to help fill out our science and technology portfolio of things that we support, niches that we can fill that our members as a group can support and make a difference in uh, science and technology developments. But in this case, we are able to cast the net far and wide and invite proposals through an open international competition. Very happy with the first two projects that we've talked about on the radio podcast before. Now um, we're very excited about these two new winners, so I'm glad you're, you've talked to them and we'll hear about their projects. We can now meet Jacob Buffo out of Dartmouth College and uh, hear about the first of these two 2023 STEP Grant Awards. Jacob, great to see you again. Congratulations on being one of our brand new STEP Grant winners. Yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be back. We're super excited and pretty humbled to to get the opportunity to work with the Planetary Society and with the STEP Grant Program. We are thrilled to have such a great project to support. Yours along with uh, the one from Andrew Palmer. I read the proposal. What it really made me want to do is go with you when you <laughs> head out to those <laughs> weird lakes in uh, British Columbia. But I was surprised to read in the proposal that there has been so little study of these so-called hypersaline lakes, these bodies of water that are often uh, many times as salty as our oceans, right? Especially as we find super salty water, or at least we suspect it all around our solar system. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty inconspicuous, it kind of seems. They're, a lot of them aren't, aren't very, very big. Uh, they'll be like an acre or two. Some of them might be five, six, seven acres. But I kind of got introduced to them by Alex Pontefract, who's one of the co-eyes 
on the project, uh, I got to go up there in, in 2019 as a, as a graduate student to these lakes. One of the other exciting things is kind of the unique geology of the region up there is such that kind of all of these different chemicals and salts that kind of get leached out of the rocks by groundwater and precipitation and runoff collect in these basins, but they're not the salts that we think about, these sodium chloride salts that are in our ocean. They're these magnesium sulfate systems and sodium carbonate systems. And so we think that's really exciting because some of those compositions have been seen on Mars and these ocean worlds like Europa and Enceladus. So we kind of want to go up there and use these as, as our little planetary laboratory. You can kind of drive 10 or 15 kilometers from one side to the next and get kind of a totally different flavor of lake to work in, which is really exciting. How many trips are you and your team going to make up there? And are you going to go at different times of year? Yeah, the plan is to be able to do four trips. There will be two in the dry season and then two in the winter. So one of the kind of exciting things about this place, it sits right in between the, the Canadian Rockies and the, and the Coast Mountains. It's this high plateau area. Mm. And so in the, in the summer, it gets extremely hot. It'll be 40 degrees Celsius, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And you have this warm, desiccating system where you're evaporating all of your water out and you have these salt pans. And so it's this extreme you know, maybe not the heat part, but at least the dryness part of a dry Mars system. In the winter, it gets extremely cold, negative 40, negative 50 sometimes up there. So you kind of have this other extreme. So we like it because there's a lot of exposure for the biology. We really like to go and look at these extremophiles that live in these systems and just how these, these systems behave. So yeah, we'll go up two years, once in the warm part, once in the winter part. The reason for this is in this top-down approach, using the first year as, as kind of our training data set, where we'll go up and we'll get all this information, both boots on the ground, in situ, grabbing all our samples and stuff, and then comparing that to aerial and orbital scale imaging and information to kind of link those remote sensing measurements to what we're actually getting in the ground. And then the next year will kind of be this simulated mission. So we want to go to some lakes that we've never been to before, and we'll basically use those remote images to predict what we think we'll see in these environments and let that drive our sampling strategy. And then we'll go up there in that second year and see how well we did, right? Or if we've really bungled it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really exciting part of this project that, that you will be doing in this second year, that simulated mission. Hopefully not having to wear bulky spacesuits as you do it to go that far with the simulation. I got to come back to biology for a second before we wrap up. I've said before on Planetary Radio that outside of quite a few mammals, including, you know, like my family, my favorite organisms on Earth are the pupfish that live seasonally in the waters that are found in Death Valley. The biology in these hypersaline lakes, are we talking just tiny microorganisms or is there any, you know, bigger multicellular stuff that swims around up there now and then? Typically, we're most interested in the in the little guys, the little bacterial, small-scale stuff, but there's actually also a ton of brine shrimp in many of these oh, lakes. No kick. That's yeah, great. So you'll go up, and they have a really unique kind of cellular structure, these lakes. So if you think of like this big, wide salt flat, they're usually not very deep. They're usually, I don't know, 10 to 50 centimeters thick, pretty shallow lakes. But they form this really weird pattern ground where you have these kind of sub-pools within the lake. They're really, really cool. And you'll like walk up to one of these pools and it'll just be full of brine shrimp swimming around. And you're kind of like, how is this even possible for, yeah, this organism that's a bit bigger to be in these systems that 
are completely saturated. A lot of times the, the floors of these lakes have salts on them because the liquid has gotten so concentrated that the salt can't dissolve anymore. It just crashes out. So these are like, you know, 20 to 30% salt in the solution. And these little shrimp are just swimming around and they're super happy. So, you know, looking at the chemistries of these systems to figure out what is limiting in these environments to life is just, a, a, you know, another aspect of that. Like why is magnesium sulfate maybe not as toxic as sodium sulfate or something like that? And picking apart what really controls habitability here so that we can extend that to other systems. And, and how can we measure that remotely and link that to what we're seeing in these brines or, or underneath these pools? This is so cool. I was only half joking when I said I want to join you up there. I mean, I saw the hotel is not very expensive. And, I, you know, I suppose I could drive <laughs> yeah. to Vancouver. But I mean, as long as I <laughs> promise not to step in anybody's research or on the brine shrimp, I would love to think I could make it up there someday uh, and watch the work as it goes on. I am also sure that when this work is farther along and you have some things to report back on that uh, Sarah or maybe I will want to bring you back on the show if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Have a great time up there. Stay safe. And uh, can't wait to hear the results of your step grant. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. Jacob Buffo is a research scientist at Dartmouth College and the principal investigator for one of the Planetary Society's 2023 step grant funded projects. After the break, our other PI, Andrew Palmer, will tell us how he'll use his step grant to learn how we'll grow crops on the moon and the red planet. This is Planetary Radio. Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. A trip to Mars and back is likely to take two years, or even more. Keeping astronauts healthy, fit, and happy on that long journey is turning out to be at least as big a challenge as building the spaceships that will get them there and back. Radiation, microgravity, isolation, and food. Someday, when humans are living on Mars, where their next meal will come from, and the next, and the next is a question we're not yet ready to answer. Andrew Palmer's Step Grant project may become a big step toward a solution, or more likely, solutions. Andrew is Associate Professor of Biological Sciences at the Florida Institute of Technology. His impressive project is titled Evaluation of Food Production Systems for Lunar and Martian Agriculture. He and one of his collaborators recently joined me for an online conversation. Andrew or Drew, which is, I guess, uh, how you prefer to go by. Thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and congratulations 
on being one of our two Step Grant awardees uh, this year. Thank you very much. It's a great honor. I know myself and the rest of the team are really excited to be able to work with the Planetary Society on this research. Now, your co-I, your co-investigator, Raphael, was unable to join us today, but would you introduce uh, Laura, who is uh, with us right now? Sure. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Laura Fackrell, who's a postdoctoral fellow at JPL and is one of our partners on the geology and the metagenomics of this project. So welcome, Laura, and congratulations to you as well. Thank you. Good to be here. Drew, we've talked before on this show about why growing at least some of your food is going to be so important on a long, long trip and stay on Mars and maybe even closer to home on the moon. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. You know, remind us, why is it going to be important to uh, to do some agriculture on these other worlds? Sure. So there's a, a variety of reasons why it's really important. One of the most vital reasons is crew morale and support and nutrition. And I guess that's more than one thing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, as, it, as it turns out, a lot of fresh ingredients will not survive the journey to the moon, especially not to Mars. And so you need fresh produce and fresh vegetables in order to provide nutrients. But it's also taste and flavor, morale. There's a connection between human beings and the, our environment, and plants are very much a part of that. And so I think, you know, there's a component for both food security and food safety of having plants that are grown in soil, right, where you are, in the terrain where you are, not just hydroponically. But there's also a component to this psychologically that would be beneficial. Nobody has to, you know, convince me about the importance of fresh food. We have seen in... Andy Weir's The Martian, both the book and the movie, of course. That was almost certainly most people's first exposure to growing food on another world. And, and Mark Watney, The Martian, managed to do it in Martian regolith with the healthy addition of some astronaut poop, I'm sure you know. Uh, so I don't know, what did you think when you read that in the book or saw it in the movie? Somebody doing what this project is actually all about several years ago when I had actually designed a project to look at growing plants on Mars. And it was before I'd ever read The Martian or seen the movie. <laughs> I watched the movie with that perspective of like, oh, I'm actually doing this. But I think it was, it was interesting to see that. And kind of, I think it provides a really useful kind of excitement. Definitely. Drew? I read that long before I was ever involved in any of this kind of project. In the back of my mind, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder how you would do something like that. That's not what I worked on. <laughs> and so then, you know, as I, as I came here to Florida Tech, I, my lab sort of migrated from the one area of research that we worked on into space agriculture. I really began to look at that as sort of like, well, if it's good enough for Matt Damon, then, you know, it's got to be good enough for us. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I use it actually as a really good educational tool because I can say, okay, so you see him do this. It's not that simple, yeah. but it's a powerful image in the movie and in the book. And I think it shows how strong of a connection we have for the concept of growing food, right? That we want to grow it in the dirt, right? There are, there are certainly benefits to hydroponics. And I think one of the major points of this project is to not be dismissive of hydroponics. It's to try and find the right balance of what we need, right? You're not going to want to put all of your eggs in one basket, right? And rely on one way to grow food when you're six months away from Earth. You're going to want to have multiple ways that the people there can get food. And so, you know, I think it's a great image. 
In your proposal, which I recommend everybody read, it's fascinating, you actually have a hypothesis about this balance between hydroponics and what you call RBA. Is it, do I have it right? Regolith-based agriculture? What, what is that hypothesis? So fundamentally, we, we believe that there's going to be a relationship, that, that there's not going to be a right answer for hydroponics or regolith. It's going to depend on the type of crop that you're trying to grow. So we think things that grow very, very quickly, like a lot of microgreens that you know have been very popular in, in choices for space agriculture, those will probably be settled very easily by hydroponics. They grow quickly, very easily in those kind of systems. But we think as you transition to foods that may take a little longer to grow, tomatoes, which is where I have a lot of experience in, in regular simulants, and some of these other plants, that there'll be a trade-off where we'll, long term it will become easier to grow these things in regular. As you condition this material, which is not very friendly, uh, not very hospitable for plant growth, that as you condition it over time, the benefits there are going to outweigh the use of trying to grow it hydroponically, right? And then we have a efficiency specialist looking with us to look at long-term sort of what we call the cradle-to-grave relationship, right? So if you factor in resupply missions to bring in new equipment for hydroponics versus fertilizer inputs for, you know, terrestrial agriculture, or I guess in this regolith-based agriculture, where does that point break? And we think that's really what's going to come out of this is an understanding of the trade-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a big part of that, too, is considering the microbiome that the plants have. And that microbiome is really made to grow in a soil environment. That's also what's evolved to be in. And it changes, and actually certain types of microbiome relationships struggle in hydroponic studies. So depending on the plant and how important certain microbial relationships are, for example, legumes are a big one for that, like peas and peanuts and different things that can participate with nitrogen fixation. That can be a big one that is important. That's really difficult to do hydroponically. So it's like trying to figure out how to have a healthy microbiome and how to balance that and which crops and kind of diversifying your system so it's more sustainable. So I think you mentioned microgreens, lettuce, tomatoes, and and I know that by microgreens, you're also talking about radishes. I have to say that if I was living on the moon or Mars and had to live on radishes, I'd probably go outside and take my helmet off. I'm not a big fan of radishes, but but lettuce and tomatoes sounds sounds just fine. You sort of address this, but why those three choices? Why will these be your crops? A lot of this is because it's, it's what we have seen before. If we're going to do a comparative study looking side by side, we want to use some of the most established crops possible. So, for instance, the outrageous lettuce is what's been grown in the veggie system on the International Space Station. And it's a lettuce that has gone all over the world now. It is such is so highly grown just because of that. Those visual images are so powerful. But we also have a lot of information on how to grow it. So we've been growing it in my lab for three, four years now. So we really have a feel for how it's going in the regolith and whether or not we're about to lose a plant or about to get lettuce we can eat. And then the same is true on Raphael's experience working with the microgreens is he's got a lot of experience working with those microgreens in lunar simulant. And so he has a good sense for the same thing. And so when we compare these to hydroponics, we'll have an an understanding of what we're looking for. And then on my end, I have a lot of experience with the tomatoes because also I I like tomatoes a lot. So I want to (laughs) see. (laughs) <laughs> I want to talk some other plants also. I think if I had to live on just lettuce and radish microgreens, I wouldn't be so happy either. Maybe the most exciting thing to me about this project is what it says about 
how close we are to actually putting humans maybe on the moon to live there, but also sending them to Mars, that we are considering what's going to be necessary, and it's going to be hard to make this successful, to let those people thrive. Do you ever, you know, sit back uh, from your data for a minute or two and think, wow, we're really part of this effort to uh, put humans on another world? It's It's a fantastic line of work. I mean, just to sit back and think about how the discussions we're having are not like, can we survive there? It's more about like, are we going to grow hydroponically or, you know, are we going to grow in the dirt and which is the right one to do? The very fact that we're actually having a calculated discussion and study into the optimization of what you're going to grow means we're past the stage of, can we grow there? We're, we know we can right? We know that we're going to be able to. The question is, is what's going to be the most efficient and the best opportunity for the settlers on those missions? I think it's also a topic that you people easily relate to. Sometimes when you talk about your science and you get deep and, and people are like, I have no idea. But this is like, it's a really easy topic. You can just say, oh, I, my project works on growing plants on the moon or on Mars. And they're like, oh, that's cool. They can just instantly connect with that. Congratulations once again on uh, becoming the only the second year uh, recipient of a STEP grant from the Planetary Society. I only wish that I could be around in 50 or 60 years to uh, hear the arguments between hydroponic farmers and regolith farmers on Mars about who has the superior uh, way of growing food for uh, the Martian colony. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Palmer, Principal Investigator for one of the two 2023 STEP grant projects just funded by the Planetary Society. His colleague and collaborator, Laura Fackrell, is a postdoctoral fellow at the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. Congratulations again to both of our STEP grant teams. It's time to welcome back Bruce and what's up? Hey, Bruce, welcome back. Uh, I'm going to tell you a cute fact that Jacob Buffo, mentioned to me after we stopped recording because you know he talked about in the interview how he had made previous trips up to those salty lakes in british columbia yeah and they worked hard when they collected samples not to pick up any critters but one time they accidentally picked up a little brine shrimp and they brought it back to the lab and gave it a name he became Jeffrey, the brine shrimp, who was the mascot of the lab. He lived for another two or three years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Probably longer than he would have made it in that salty uh, lake. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, all those brine shrimp predators. Uh, listen, that's what's past. What's up? What's up is Venus, Matt. Venus, about its highest, uh, right around its highest point in the sky this time around, and its appearance, super bright, brightest star-like object over in the west after sunset. Uh, easy, easy, easy to see, and it's it's a good time. Uh, but you can also look a little bit higher, and there's a much, much, much dimmer reddish Mars. It will be growing closer to Venus over the next few weeks, and I'll update you on that. And uh, you can also check out in the pre-dawn, we've got Saturn now yellowish high up in the east uh, before dawn and Jupiter actually getting much easier to see low down to the horizon in the east looking super bright. 
Mercury's kind of, it's near Jupiter. If you can pick it up soon, it's below Jupiter, and uh, but we'll be getting lower over the next few days. So a lot of, a lot of good planet action, pre-dawn or evening. And during the middle of the day, you can look down between your feet and see the Earth. All right, uh, let's go on to what was, and what shall be, and what still is, which is this week in space history. And uh, in this week in space history, 1966, Surveyor 1 landed on the moon, soft lander, robotic lander from the U.S. And in 2003, which I think is strangely 20 years ago, Mars Express launched uh, European Space Agency Mars Orbiter, and uh, it's still doing its thing at Mars. Very impressive. That's this week's profound space fact. But let me give you a less profound random space fact. Uh, I've missed that. Apollo 11, they just tried to sleep for a little bit on flat surfaces on the floor, essentially, of the lunar module. Apparently, both of them pretty much failed to get any sleep. They tried hammocks in the later Apollos, and there was some more success, but still uh, found it tricky just sleeping uh, with the, you're still in gravity, so but you're in a little tiny space and all sorts of other issues. Now, of course, on the International Space Station, they just kick back and relax in sleeping bags and float around and have crazy, crazy, crazy dreams. Yeah, someday, someday, I want to give it a shot. I, I, I'll sleep on a hard metal floor. I'll give that a shot, especially at one sixth gravity. But uh, <laughs> I, just, just get me up there. I'll sleep like a baby. Your willingness as a guinea pig is something I've always, um, let's say, admired. Let's use the word admired. <laughs> That's good. I like that. All right, so we move on to. So I asked, we were, we played, we played. Where in the solar system? And I asked you, where in the solar system is there a crater named Macbeth? How'd we do, Matt? You know, I don't get the entries anymore. And all I have is our winner. So apologies to any of you out there. And I'm sure there were many who made very clever answers to this and probably emulated uh, the bard himself. But all I've got is our winner, Linda Yarbrough from Anchorage, Alaska. She said, Macbeth Crater is on Oberon, a moon of Uranus. Out, damn crater. The prize, Linda, that you're going to get is a goodnight oppie 12-ounce thermal mug. I've seen these. They're swell. Uh, use it in good health as you listen to Planetary Radio. So congratulations. Congratulations. And so I guess we'll go on and we'll go back to the topic of sleep. According to official records, who was the first person to sleep in space? Was it Matt Kaplan? Was it someone else? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Cool. Um, all right. I'll try and stay awake for this. You have until June 7, Wednesday, June 7 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this one. And Sarah, let me know that she has exactly one JWST poster left. The, the really, really cool James Webb Space Telescope posters that uh, she, I think she's given away a couple of at least. Could be yours if you get it right and you're chosen. So uh, get us those entries and you'll hear the answer from Bruce and Sarah in a couple of weeks. Hey, Matt, great to have you back. Keep guesting, keep checking out, keep hanging out. You keep on trucking. In the meantime, everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about... 
<laughs> Sarah will return next week. Her guest, Serafina Nance, has written Starstruck, a science-packed memoir about how this Egyptian-American astrophysicist and analog astronaut overcame obstacles in her reach for the sky. This has been great fun. I hope you'll hear from me again soon. In the meantime, I'll see those of you who are Planetary Society members in our online community, where I host the book club. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our members who make the STEP grants and so much more happen. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is the audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Thank you.